Saul is now given his first task as the newly appointed captain of Israel's army against Nahash, the Ammonite. This is the 25th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from Samuel and chapter 11. Samuel and chapter 11, the entire chapter. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us. By the inspiration of God, the prophet records this as he speaks of the conquest of the Ammonites. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes, and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel, and then... If there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. And he took a yoke of oxen and knewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so, on the morrow, that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered, so that two of them were not left together. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel to the people, Come, and let us go to Gilgal, and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy at Ephesus, Second Timothy, his second epistle, chapter 2, the first five verses. Second Timothy 2, 1 through 5. And by the same spirit, Paul is speaking to Timothy of the character of a soldier of Christ. And by inspiration of God, he says this. Thou therefore, my son, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath called, who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except that he strive lawfully. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now that Saul has officially been commissioned and inaugurated as the captain of the nation of Israel, especially the Israeli army, he is now faced with his first monumentous task, which, of course, is orchestrated by God, and it is his first task. Notice, verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up, this is by God's providence, this was Saul's test, and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, the men of Jabesh-Gilead. So God is now orchestrating a military situation as both a task and a test by emboldening and raising up Nahash, the Ammonite, in order for him to be so bold against the men of Jabesh-Gilead as to attack them. And herein is a test for both Israel and Saul, especially in particular the men of Jabesh-Gilead and Saul as the newly appointed captain of Israel's army. And so Nahash, seeing that he may have providentially, he may be looking at his army, he may see that he has had and has the military advantage over Israel, especially since Israel has now just had a a new ruler. They've been just shown that Saul is just inaugurated as the captain. He had not yet been tested. So maybe seeing this, Nahash sets his army in array, and he threatens the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now note the response to the Ammonite by the men of Jabesh. Being threatened, here's their response. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, wicked Nahash, mind you, make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. Two points here. Make a covenant, and we will be your slaves. So out of fear of being overrun and conquered by this wicked Ammonite, Nahash, these men of Gabesh, in a shameful, cowardly response, offered to this man an olive branch. They offered to Nahash, wicked Nahash, an olive branch with the caveat that they have a covenant with him, a tyrant, a wicked man, and they'll serve him. They'll be his slaves. Out of fear out of cowardice. This was in fact a direct violation of God's commandment not to federate or make covenant with the wicked. So not only were they cowards, not only were they fearful, cowardly men, but they were ignorant of God's law or they were just simply rebellious of God's law and said, well, since God is not watching or maybe this is a certain circumstance, maybe this is a circumstance which is specific, we can violate the law of God and we can federate with the Ammonite. So out of sheer terror of what Nahash might do to them, they seek to appease the Ammonite rather than to obey and trust God. They would fear man rather than fear God. 
And this is a malady that has almost destroyed much of the modern church of our day. Instead of trusting God, especially in recent times, and resisting the encroachment of the wicked upon the people of God, the church has sought to make a covenant with the wicked of the world, in particular the state, especially in the area of education and many of its other godless institutions, in order to ward off any confrontation. So they have made a covenant. Don't you think that this is really what has happened? That when we seek to obey wicked men, we are making a covenant and becoming their slave? The problem is that there will always be confrontation between the church and the state, Christianity and non-Christianity. There will always be this confrontation. And we are to strive, as Paul says to Timothy, lawful in this confrontation as good soldiers. The gospel is not about flowers and honey and roses. It's about confrontation with the wicked of the world. So there'll always be, until the end of time, until Christ finally destroys all the workers of iniquity, there will be, up until that point, the encroachment of the wicked, a confrontation of the wicked. And the state always seeks to have the church make a covenant with the state, especially in the area of education. And if they don't, the state will always seek to act as God and, like Nahash, intimidate the church of the living Christ. And that's what we've seen recently. Intimidation by the wicked against the church. Now, in order to avoid any confrontation with the state, the modern church has covenanted with it by first sending their covenant children to government indoctrination camps called the public schools or the government schools. Secondly, the church is compromised by willingly funding those schools with taxes rather than taking a stand against this high-priced funding. And the question is this, where is the resistance? We don't see it with the men of Jabesh Gilead. There's no resistance here. They don't even think about it. They say, well, let's see, maybe there's someone that will, they'll, they'll save us. Instead of mustering their own resolve, they're looking for an out by asking others to save them. So my question has always been, where is the resistance by the people of God? Why isn't the church, the church who has professed itself to be orthodox, where is the church resisting? Why isn't the church getting actively involved in thwarting these encroachments? Furthermore, in the political arena, in the political front, why isn't the church supporting candidates that will fight against the bloat of the government schools? Why is there no outcry? Thirdly, by registering with the state as a 501c3 entity, the church has become an entity of the state, stripping it of its lordship sovereignty by becoming a formulation of the state. Number four, by allowing the state to dictate the church's hours of operation, which has been done recently, or the mode of worship, the freedom to serve communion, and the freedom to speak openly about political issues without the threat of punishment, we have allowed the state to do that. There needs to be pushback. We need to trust God and not fear man. The men of Jabesh Gilead were unwilling to do that because of fear, because of cowardice. And so, Nahash threatens. And when Nahash threatens, Israel falls apart. 
not only do they offer a covenantal affiliation, but they promise to serve the Ammonites. The mercies of the wicked are cruel. How could they even think of saying, we will serve you? And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. Now there's an important principle here. The men of Jabesh Gilead's fear was so great as a result of their faith being so small that they were willing to give up everything. They were willing to do anything not to incur the wrath of the Ammonites. They had completely forgotten God in the mix. Their fear was so great only because their faith was so small. And what they chose was total appeasement, servitude. The problem with appeasing the enemy is appeasement of the wicked only makes them more aggressive. This is exactly what happened in this historical situation. Notice, Nahash doesn't say, okay, that's a great deal. Notice what he says. On this occasion, verse 2, will I make a covenant. I'm going to give you my stipulations. I want to thrust out all your right eyes and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. I'm going to take your eye. Only one, the right eye. Now this was an interesting condition for a number of reasons. Most often, the right eye is the dominant eye. In most cases, the right eye is the dominant eye. If it is taken, the ability to visually navigate distance would greatly interfere with the ability to shoot a bow or to effectively function in any military conflict. The taking of the right eye would ensure that the men of Jabesh could never rise up against the tyranny of Nahash. Take the right eye and you will not have military confrontation. Commentator Richard Phillips explains, he says, according to Josephus, warriors of that day fought in formation with interlocking shields so that the left eye was covered by the shield. By gouging out the right eye, Nahash rendered them unfit for battle, though still eligible for slave labor. If Nahash succeeded in reducing Jabesh Gilead and disarming its garrison, Israel could have lost its territory east of the Jordan permanently. So Nahash wants the people of Jabesh to have no military strength or skill whatsoever. They would be rendered ineffective militarily. And this is very similar. Now, if you want to put this together, practically speaking, this is very similar to the modern historical situation by the tyrannical state when it seeks to disarm its citizenry from their defensive weapons. This is the modern state's move for gun confiscation. Make them ineligible to defend themselves against tyranny. That's what Nahash wanted. Nahash had another motive as well. According to 1 Samuel 11.2, he wanted nothing more than to humiliate the Israelites. Notice and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. This is the operational motive for all wicked men. That is to humiliate the church and its people. They want to humiliate us. They want to say, we'll tell you when to worship. We'll tell you how to worship. We'll tell you where to sit in your pew. We'll tell you when to have communion. We'll tell you when not to have communion. We'll tell you when it's legal to meet and when it's illegal to meet. We will dictate your decisions. That's exactly what's happening here. 
It's an attack against God and His excellency. And the psalmist puts it this way. Speaking of the wicked, in Psalm 62, 4, he says, they, the wicked, only consult. In other words, their consulting is for one reason only. Think about this. What is happening in Congress? What is happening in the executive branch? In the justices? What is happening? They're consulting. They're having consultations. What are they consulting? Notice what the psalmist says. They, the wicked, only consult to cast him down, Christ, down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. That is the modus operandi of all the wicked to humiliate Christ and his church. Make no mistake about it. Secondly, it seems as if God is making a spiritual statement here as well in Nahash's terms of surrender. As far as God is concerned, the men of Jabesh were already blind. They had looked at the situation from a purely human vantage point and were willing to become slaves to a murderous man. They already were in darkness. They were stumbling as blind men. Effectively, their dominant eye, their dominant right eye, offended their sense of fidelity to God. And perhaps Jesus was directly referring to this when he directed his hearers to this historical account when he stated in Matthew chapter 5, 29, and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. You see, it was better for the men of Jabesh to pluck out their own eyes rather than give themselves over to the Ammonites. And yet Jesus was not only pointing to this situation, but I believe he may have also been alluding to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 17. Notice. Woe unto the idle shepherds that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. The sword shall be upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. That's what Jabesh's problem was. They were blind men. These men of Jabesh were idle shepherds that would not so much as stand to defend the flock of God. They were ready and they were willing to place the entire congregation under the yoke of a wicked ruler, even at the price of losing their eyes. Notice the last portion of Zechariah's prophecy. His arm shall be clean, dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. We see here that the right eye is utterly darkened, another phrase for being blind, and the arm, referring to military strength, is dried up. The situation implies total subjugation to an enemy. Fear of the enemy not fear of God. God moves Nahash to ask for this horrible concession in order to expose the cowardice and infidelity of these people. So, who is this man? Who is Nahash? That God would raise him up. And what is God teaching us, both illustratively and eschatologically? Well, the name Nahash literally means serpent. It is the same word used in the garden and identifies all those who are wicked. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 58, 3 and following. The wicked, notice, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf adder, another kind of a snake that stoppeth her ear which will not hearken to the voice of charmers, charming never so wisely. Notice Psalm 140, verse 1, 2, and 3. 
Deliver me, O Lord, from the evil man. Notice who's in view, the evil man. Preserve me from the violent man. Notice who's in view, the violent man, which imagines mischief in their heart. Continually are they gathered together for war. Notice, again, warfare, this idea of confrontation. They have sharpened their tongues like a serpent. Adder's poison is under their lips. Speaking of the Lord's conquest over the wicked, Micah says this, Micah 7.17, They, the wicked, shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of Yahweh Elohim and shall fear because of thee. Nahash is one of the wicked men who are likened to a serpent. By God sending Nahash to chasten Israel, He was simply following his methodology. He spells this out in Jeremiah using the serpent metaphor once again. Jeremiah 8.17 Behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. Nahash wasn't going to be charmed. He was going to make a covenant, and he was going to put their eyes out, and he was going to make them serve. There was no turning him around. Because the wicked will not be turned around. They cannot be charmed. You cannot make an affiliation with the wicked. Whether it's in the marriage covenant or with the church and the state, no. As long as one of those entities is wicked or unregenerate, you cannot confederate. In the New Testament, we see Paul picking up on this as well. We see wicked men throughout the New Testament referred to over and over as serpents. Notice, Speaking to the Pharisees, both John and Jesus condemned them as serpents. Notice Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, serpents, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Notice John's indictment recorded almost verbatim in Luke 3. Then said he, this is verse 7 of chapter 3 of Luke, then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Later on, Jesus harmonizes with John against the wicked, calling them serpents in Matthew twenty-three thirty-three, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Speaking of rebellious mankind, the Apostle Paul adds this, as it is written, chapter 3, verse 10 and following. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God, speaking of the wicked. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That was Nahash. So it should not surprise us then that the Ammonite's name, Nahash, is symbolic, referring to all those that are wicked and those who are the serpents, the enemies of God. But there is also a covenant theme hidden here as well, which is a lesson for us illustratively and eschatologically pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, God had promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God is going to crush the head of all the wicked who are coming out in confrontation against the Lord's people seeking to pluck out their dominant eye so that they look straight on to the Lord, that they would look to the state and not to the Lord, and that they would make him ineffective for any confrontation against the wicked. 
That was the promise. That was the covenant made with Adam and Eve at the very beginning, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, illustratively, we see this throughout redemptive history. Note how God promises to destroy the wicked, however, not at the end of the world, but throughout the confines of time. Notice, Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Verse 9 and following. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be, yea, those shall diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Verse 14. The wicked have drawn out the sword, and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, and to slay such as be of upright conversation. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. Verse 38 and 39. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. That is what the men of Jabesh fail to understand. David, looking back to this event, he understood it, and that's why he's writing this. These are the promises of God that have been filled throughout history. Whenever God's people call upon him in faith and obedience. Notice what the men of Jabesh Gilead didn't do. They didn't call out to God, Oh God, have mercy upon us. We don't hear anything like that. The ultimate and universal destruction of the wicked, however, is an eschatological promise as well as a historical promise when the Lord comes at his incarnation to judge the wicked universally. And this is what he is doing now. He's judging them and he's destroying them. Through his body, the church, the new Jerusalem. Notice, for he has come to judge the just and the unjust, according to John 9.39. And Jesus said, for judgment I am come into this world, that they which see may not see. Notice a reference to being blind. Those that see may not see, and they which see might be made blind. This began at Pentecost when the separation between the wheat and the chaff, along with the sheep and the goats, had begun. Secondly, eschatologically, the seed is, of course, Christ, as he crushes the heads of all of the wicked described as serpents. This head crushing, even this head crushing, is a theme in Scripture. And you would think that the men of Jabesh, being Hebrews, and Nahash's name meaning, in the Hebrew serpent, would say, wait a minute, this is the serpent that God is speaking about through Moses during the garden temptation. And yet they fail to factor God into the, into the equation. Now this head crushing is a major theme in scripture. Whenever the wicked raise up their ungodly head to become the head over the church or over the world, where Christ actually is the head of the church and of the world, God crushes it. Notice the theme. Jail crushes the head of Sisera. The woman on the top of the castle wall crushes the head of wicked Abimelech. Samson crushes a thousand Philistine heads with the jawbone of an ass while apparently singing a poem-like song which literally goes something like this. Notice how he is mocking. A great picture of God, the, the judge, the Nazarite warrior priest. He's mocking the Philistines. Even as Psalm 2 says that he mocks them. 
Notice what he says in the psalm. As Samson speaks this poetic destruction, he says, With the jawbone of an ass I have slain one ass, two asses, three, four, every one to a thousand. With the jawbone of an ass I have slain a thousand men. He counts them out. That's what the Hebrew would imply. That's what we should infer, that he's counting it out because he's mocking them. He's calling the Philistines asses, insinuating that they are unclean animals in the same way as an unclean ass is. And so the theme of head crushing is throughout Scripture, even by the insinuation which the Lord uses in Matthew 21:44, where he says, And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, or crushed, if you will, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder, a crushing. Now the men of Jabesh, Gilead, are being forced into a decision. The problem with their decision process, because every decision is a decision which has a process behind it, a methodology behind it, how we make a decision. Their decision process is that it was based upon fear and not faith. So as a result, when it's based on fear and not faith, they're going to naturally look to a man for deliverance. This was a worldly reaction to their situation. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel, and then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Notice they're looking for a man. A political leader. A military leader. An academic leader. It's not going to happen that way. God is not in all their thoughts. These faithless men decide to take seven days in order to send messengers to every corner of Israel to find a man to save them. They don't tell Nahash that they will pray to the Lord for wisdom or that God has promised to defend them or that they would return home to offer sacrifices to the Lord. We don't see anything like this. What we see is that their right eye of faith is already plucked out, even though Nahash didn't do it yet, to the point where they do not even recognize that their need for confession and repentance. And this is what the faithless do. They look to men to save them. Once the word of Jabesh Gilead's situation reaches Gibeah, the people react to the threat, but they do not respond. Notice they react, but they do not respond. At least they do not respond in faith. Their approach to the situation is reactionary. According to the flesh, whereas they should have responded biblically according to the spirit. And like the men of Jabesh, they become just as afraid to the point where they're, they're weeping, they're crying. They're hearing this and they're crying. Now by this time, Saul had returned to his shepherding, presumably waiting to see how his newly appointed position would flesh out. And it is at this time that he hears the weeping of the people in verse 5. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Note Saul's reaction. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. This verse presents a number of questions. First, why was Saul's anger greatly kindled? One might ask, was it his passion for God's honor? That's highly questionable. I don't believe he had passion for God's honor. So was it because he loved his people? Well, that too seems to be questionable, especially in light of his future tyrannical rule over them. Especially what Samuel said that he would do to them. Did he love them? Is that why he's going to put them in slavery? 
was because he hated Nahash? Well, that might be a valid reason, but I think it goes beyond that. Remember, Saul had just been anointed the captain of the Israeli army. Is he going to stand by and let this pagan Amorite strip him of his kingdom advancement even before he takes possession of it? Is he going to allow Nahash to make him a fool? Remember, the pride of Saul is great. Is he going to let this happen? Secondly, it was the Spirit of God that caused Saul to become angry. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul and his anger was kindled. Now, even though Saul's motive may have been sinful, it was God's intention to establish Saul as the temporary Savior so that the people would be more inclined to follow him as part of the chastisement. He will become the temporary deliverer of the people in order to show Israel that salvation is not of men, but of the Lord. And verse 6 gives us a hint as to Saul's character and his ambition to be the king of Israel that we did not see even at this point. In other words, in order to raise an army, a fearful, sobbing defeatist, and that's what they were, they were a bunch of girly men. They were sobbing defeatists. They already lost in their minds. They already had lost their eyes. They, they already had become slaves. They were all crying like little girls. They weren't military mighty men. And Saul knew that if he called these men to battle, they may not come. He may be made a fool of. And he could not. His pride would not allow him to be made a fool. So what does he do? How does he manipulate, because that's what he is, a manipulator, how does he manipulate the masses? Notice verse 7. He takes a yoke of oxen and he cuts them in pieces. And he mails them. He sends messengers, of course. He sends them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hand of messengers. Presumably these are 12 pieces because each tribe had to get one. And he says, with the piece of the oxen. Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul, if you don't come out, if you don't fight alongside me and back me up against Nahash, I will do to you what I've done to this oxen. I'll cut you in pieces. And by God's orchestration, the fear of the Lord falls on the people and they come out with one consent. But remember, they're manipulated. They are fearful of man. Saul takes advantage of it because they believe that he is God's man. Saul is replicating at this point, if you remember, what the Levite did when he cut his concubine in 12 pieces in order to unify the nation for vengeance against the tribe of Benjamin. Saul was a Benjamite. He knew what this was. He knew how to manipulate. Saul will remember this very well since he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now what is telling here and what is what he is telling what Saul is telling Israel is that if you do not fight for me I'm going to cut you in pieces so right away he's threatening he's not leading he's not beseeching he's not calling on God he is threatening and it is here where the tyrannical Saul begins to feel superior over all of his brethren to the point of being an insecure despot. And Saul's threat worked. Now, of course it did. The people were fearful. They were already afraid. They were already crying. 
Why not use their own weakness to Saul's advantage? Saul knew that if he had the support of the entire nation of Israel, he would then be able to defeat Nahash and gain both the kingdom and the respect, if not the fear, of the people. He was an opportunist and his plan worked marvelously. So the lesson is very simple. Fearful people are manipulative people. They are easily manipulated. If you have someone who's fearful, you can manipulate them to do whatever you want. That's what's happening in our nation today. As long as you can keep up the fear, you can keep up the control. The lessons here are timeless. And they are screaming to us in our day today. Make them afraid and they will do almost anything you tell them to do even when it is absolutely illogical. And so an army of 33,000 Israelites is formed. And again we see the number three in view. And they are formed to support the men of Jabesh. We see this in verses 8 and 9. Now it's interesting to note that once the men of Jabesh had support and knew that they were not alone in the conflict, they rejoiced. Notice, and the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh and they were glad. No, they were rejoicing. You see, at that point, when there was the rallying of all of God's people, Jabesh had courage. They, they gained a sense of courage. Their hope was rekindled. And this is why we, as the body of Christ, must be constantly supporting one another while we're in the fight. It's no good to see churches closing because of their fear of the state. That doesn't encourage us. It gives us no strength. But when all of God's people galvanize together, then we have hope, then we have strength, then we have comfort. And that's what happened to the men of Jabesh. They saw all of the Israelites coming together and their hope was rekindled. And that's why we as the body of Christ must be constantly supporting one another while we're in the fight, pledging our support in any and every conflict that seeks to threaten the liberty of God's kingdom and the people of his inheritance. Whether it's in the local congregation, in families, or in the state. Now verse 11 confirms Saul's victory over the Ammonites. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies. We see that number three again. And they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered so that two of them were not left together. An entire victory. So Saul is now, in the eye of the people, established in the eye and in the mind of the people. He's established to the point that those that had the audacity to question his leadership because he was from the tribe of Benjamin or those who had questioned his office, that legitimacy of his office, now, because he had been so victorious, now they are the target of assassination. Verse 12, And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Now this, sadly, is the mindset of very wicked, rebellious, and vengeful men. In their mind, and whoever was saying this, in their mind, if anyone now at this point, because of the victory that Saul had led, even though they failed to recognize it was under the threat of dismemberment and destruction, now if anyone questioned Saul's legitimacy, they were dead men. We see this today. 
also today in our own nation. You see, today, if anyone questions the legitimacy of any political office bearer, they are targeted for either character assassination, economic assassination, or even murderous assassination. You can't even question anymore. But to Saul's credit, while he was an evil, tyrannical man, he was not willing to stoop to the depravity of many in political and financial power as those in our nation today. We have the worst souls. Speak out and disagree in your opinion in this despotic, radicalized nation and you are a target for destruction. Preach the gospel. Preach the illegitimacy of wicked men in office and you are targeted. But it goes further than that. Today, even if you do not publicly or even secretly disagree, you are intimidated to publicly agree and publicly support that which we do not believe is true and righteous. And if you don't openly agree, then you are slotted for destruction. But Saul, to his credit, if that's the only credit we can give him, would not agree to such tyranny. At least not at this time. Give him time and he will do far worse than this. And Saul said, there shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord had wrought salvation in Israel. To his credit, he understood that God was behind it all. You had to be a complete buffoon and moron not to see God's hand in it. And so having defeated the enemy, Saul is seen as the unifier and restorer of the nation, even though the future would prove otherwise. So the men of Jabesh and the people of Israel, they said, oh, we could have a man, an earthly man to deliver us. We don't really need God anymore because that's what they were seeing. But note how Saul takes full advantage of his victory. And here is the great reset according to the reprobate King Saul. Verse 14. Then said Samuel to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. He is going to state the stipulation of the kingdom. God had orchestrated the situation in order to illustrate the antithesis between Saul, the tyrannical king, and David, the righteous, liberating king. And all the people, verse 15, went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king. Notice, no longer captain. Now he's worthy because he's now a victorious, conquering captain, a military leader. Now he is made king by the assent of the people. He's made king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So Saul is now not only the military captain of Israel, but he's now looked at as the legitimate king over God's people. Israel might have been rejoicing now, but sorrow and confusion was soon to follow. We will examine that in more detail next when we return to our study in the book of 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.